was pretty ambitious this evening. Um, it's been a while since we attempted to cover six chapters, uh, but, but because we slowed our pace a little last week uh, and because of kind of the cadence of the book of Ezekiel itself, uh, we're going to take a longer chunk tonight. Um, we are picking up here in chapter 18, verse 1, and let's just, let's just open by reading. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And so God here, through Ezekiel, interrogates Israel for a well-known proverb. The father have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Ezekiel is not the first prophet to address this proverb, although when Jeremiah does so, he does so from a slightly different angle. But the, the basic idea uh, is first in the literal. The literal of this metaphor is as if uh, the dad popped a whole lemon in his mouth and the child's face puckered, right? It's, it's uh, not the way it's supposed to be. And so the idea here is one of unfair consequence due to the last generation's sins. Now, some have suggested here that the idea is not that Israel is complaining that they're bearing the responsibility of the generations before them, but just an all-around fatalism. That why should we even try? Why should we even care? What does our obedience count? We've already been exiled. Okay. Nonetheless, both of them point back to the past uh, and don't place enough responsibility on the present. Both put the blame firmly on the shoulders of those who came before and deny, therefore, the responsibility of uh, the persons uh, using this proverb. Notice God clarifies in verse 3, says, As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. In other words, he's going to do a work in this generation so significant, the ability to put the blame on past generations will be removed. Verse 4, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And so he summarizes his critique of this proverb very simply, and he basically says, everyone belongs to me. Everyone is accountable to me, and I am just individual to individual. I will hold people accountable for their own sins, and death is the consequence not merely of the sin of others, like think of murder, for example, but the reality of death is actually directly tied to our own sins. So now he presents a couple of hypotheticals to show how God's justice works in practice. But I want you to notice as he does so, he keeps these illustrations generationally connected. So he's going to start with a grandfather, and then the father, and then the grandson. Three generations here, which we'll see if we make it tonight to the later chapters of our study um, is appropriate for this time because there's basically uh, three generations in kind of in the mind of these uh, who are involved here. There are Israel 
super past, Israel as this continuous reality going all the way back to the days of Samuel, maybe even back to the days of Moses. And then there is uh, Israel in the final days that led to judgment. And then there's this Israel, the ones who are already living in exile, the grandchildren, if you will, of this illustration. So it's appropriate then that he walks through these three Um, to show this in a generational context. And so he begins in verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, and then he illustrates what righteousness and justice looks like. Verse 6. If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, speaking there of adultery, or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, Now, that one may seem much further down the list, but it's drawn from Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, uh, which is basically where the strongest code of sexuality is presented for uh, what's required of Israel. The idea of sex during menstruation has to do, as we've talked about in the past in the book of Jeremiah, with the reality of the God who is life. And so it's about ritual uncleanness here, not about moral realities, but it's a disregard expressed for this clean and unclean setup that God has set. Because remember, what's unique about Israel? God, because of the temple and before that the tabernacle, lives in their very midst. And so how does God do that in the midst of a sinful people? These rules and regulations, the kosher law and the ritual purity laws, are all about expressing and maintaining those boundaries, okay? Um, So if he maintains those boundaries, verse 7, if he does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge and commits no robbery, if he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous, he shall surely live, declares the Lord. Notice that the description here is relatively broad. And because of that broadness, it touches on all sorts of areas, how you treat those who borrow money from you, how you handle yourself in a court of law, how you treat people in your sexuality, how you go about your worship, all of those areas are covered. But because it is so broad, it's also a tremendously high standard. Now here, uh, it is not talking about sinless perfection, but a general commitment to God's covenant. Okay. And so the idea isn't here necessarily that anyone who falters in a single area is worthy of judgment, because remember, Israel has ways and means for that. They have the sacrificial system, they have the altar, they have these things in place so that their sins, which are inevitable because they're human, can be dealt with. But what's expressed here is just a general description of a commitment to God and his covenant. Okay. In contrast, verse 10 If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself, the father, did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He's done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. 
So notice, this hypothetical is a relatively black and white contrast. A righteous father produces a wicked son, right? There's a white father and a black son. There's a good father and an evil son. What if everything the father did right, the son did wrong? Notice he can't ride the coattails of his previous generation's righteousness. He can't coast and say, well, because I belong to religious royalty, I have a free ticket into God's good graces. He can't separate his actions uh, and say, well, I was born into the right family or I have the right lineage or the right heritage, so everything will be right. Jesus makes a similar critique of those in his days. He says, don't say we are sons of Abraham. Right? Don't say we have a heritage back to a very truly righteous person, the very friend of God. He is our great, great ancestor. And he says if God wanted to give Abraham sons, he could have done it from rocks. Right? They can't stand on the shoulders of the generations that came before them. This man, it says, if he's done all these abominations, he shall surely die. And then notice, his blood shall be upon himself. Now the math there is very simple. Sin to death, one-to-one correlation, wicked to judgment, okay? But also, remember, in this generational context, that is significantly important. In fact, maybe some of you uh, are parents of adult children or have known parents of adult children, and this is a real point of tension and pain, worry, and sometimes a strong, significant sense of guilt, At the least, although this is a hypothetical, we can say that it is possible to be good parents of bad children. That's, That's just an implication. There is the need for good parents to be good parents, right? There is a righteousness and a goodness and a truth and an honoring of God that's expressed in the act of parenting itself, okay? So maybe it's possible, potentially, to be a good citizen and a bad parent. But that's not what we're presuming here. We're presuming this is a good parent who trained up his child in the way that he should go. In fact, notice that language again there at the end of verse 13. His blood shall be upon himself. We've already encountered that phrase in Ezekiel. Do you remember? When Ezekiel was called, God told him he was to operate as a watchman standing upon the walls and warning of the impending judgment, and if he failed to do so, the blood of the dead would be on his hands. He would be responsible for the loss of life. And so when it says here, his blood shall be upon himself, in contrast to who? Where else would his blood fall? The responsibility of his father. Okay. And so again, it is possible to be a good parent with a bad child. In fact, you can put this in so many other relationships in our life. It's possible to be a good king of bad subjects. It's possible to be good subjects of a bad king. It's possible to be a good husband to a bad wife or a good wife to a bad husband. Okay? All of these realities effectively recognize the free will and choice that goes into sin and righteousness. Now, Ezekiel has made very clear the current condition Israel is in is one of hard-heartedness, of stone-heartedness. There is limitations to that idea. But what I want to stress here is not God's sovereignty in human life, but your lack of sovereignty in other people's lives. 
that it is very possible for you to do all the right things and people to still go their own way, still make their own choices, still do the things that they're going to do. That is especially important for us today because, especially in the realm of parenting, parenting has become such a high-stakes thought process where mothers and fathers are constantly wondering about uh, if they are failing their children and very much weigh themselves in the balance, not to mention all their other friends on social media, on how they are doing that job. But remember, the goal here, what Ezekiel is trying to reiterate, is that this determinationist uh, view, this determinism that says, basically, I am prohibited either by my genes or I am excused by my genes. Basically, I just pick up the mess that the generation left before me. All of these ideas that leave no room for change, as we'll see, as well as no room for responsibility, need to be set aside. Let me remind you again the way he put it, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Okay. Again, not to put too fine a point on it, but this also implies significantly, doesn't it, that it is important that our children take their relationship for God as their own that they can't just enter in on the faith of their parents, but at some point in their life, they must cross the threshold where the belief is not just something they've inherited, but something that they have now taken and claim as their own. Now, notice we move on to another generation, and remember the pattern here. Okay, we have a righteous grandfather, a wicked father, and now we're going to see a righteous son. Ezekiel effectively covers all the bases here. He, he sets us up for both, well, what if I have a good dad, as well as what if I have a terrible mother? Both are set up here. Now, verse 14, suppose this man, the wicked man, the one whose blood is upon his own shoulders. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and he does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountain or lift up his eyes to the idol of his house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest to profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes, he shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was good, did what was not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. And so notice here, the son can, if you'll allow me the language, redeem his own life, but he can't redeem his father's. Okay, and so we see this, this individualism rooted in both directions. Okay, and so we are not uh, stuck in the sins of our parents. Nor can we compensate for them. As was said in the beginning, the soul who sins shall die. God will be just. Now remember, Ezekiel's purpose here is to deal with a generation that is too quick to absolve themselves of sin. 
We've seen that over and over again. Ezekiel has had to take every angle into this issue that he can think of, every illustration, every metaphor, every acted out performance, because there uh, are people in Ezekiel's day living in uh, Babylon who are doing a couple of things. One, some of them, some of them are saying this is only temporary. God is good, we are still in God's good graces, and he's going to set this right, right? That's the message of the false prophets that Jeremiah talks about, who were working in Ezekiel's day, in Ezekiel's neighborhood, in Babylon. That was inaccurate. And the reason it was inaccurate is because the people were continuing in the same sins that had brought about the judgment in the first place. Another group of people was, uh, was effectively saying Jerusalem still stands and it cannot fall because we keep the practices, we do the temple, we honor God's covenant, and so it's all going to work out in the end. But that also, Ezekiel has shown us, was false. And then there are those who question God's goodness, fairness, and power. Who said, I don't know how we ended up here, but since it's not our fault, it must be God's. Maybe he was too weak to keep this from happening. And the other gods truly are more powerful. Maybe he's not as good. These were the ones who said, God, why haven't you kept your promises? And so Ezekiel's need here is to be very explicit and specific. And so here he points out that if you are in the midst of, if you are experiencing judgment, maybe the first question you should ask, not the seventh, is, is this because of my choices? Or, another uh, venue this allows us is to look at past generations, right? They look at the last generation and say, all their fault. Therefore, removing themselves of responsibility. But Ezekiel propositions another way to think, which is basically, if their lives and your lives match, and that life led to this end, what should you be expecting for yourself? Now, there's another problem here. The next question is, okay, so this is where I'm at. I'm the good kid or the bad kid. I'm the good father or the bad father. Remove the other generation, that's fine. But can I change where I am? Can I fix where I'm at? Am I just resolved to wickedness and therefore resolved to judgment? In fact, notice verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul of sin shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now I love this, because God could have just stopped at the diagnosis. But he also presents not just a consequence, but a cure. He says, if you own up to your own need for repentance, then the possibility of repentance is there. Sometimes the way we express this that I find helpful uh, is to think about what we believe as Christians. We believe in the gospel, the good news. 
But the only way to receive the good news is to believe the bad news. Without you are a sinner in need of saving, there's no need for a Savior. There's no reason to receive Jesus. In the same way, Ezekiel is trying to walk them through this process, not just so he can justify God in his righteousness for judgment, but so that they can see their true condition and own up to it. In English, we call this confession. And the word in the New Testament that we use for confession actually is just a little word that means to agree. In other words, a significant part of confession is just agreeing with God. God says, you have sinned, and confession is saying, I have sinned. But we don't confess just to justify God, but also that is the door that opens up our justification. That's why John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins as Christians, God is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all, all unrighteousness. Okay, and so God wants us to confess not because he's in some sort of trite argument where both of us refuse to admit who's done wrong, but because the only way wrongs can be set right is to take ownership for those wrongs, to confess them. Sins confessed can be dealt with. And so he says here, maybe you can no longer blame your father. You now see your own wickedness. Great, there's a door open to you. It's called repentance. Now, notice here that this idea is more than confession. Look again at verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed. Ezekiel doesn't merely say if a person says, I have sinned, right? Mia culpa is not all that's here, but that he actually turns away from those sins. That's what we call repentance. Repentance means not just to recognize those sins as sins, not just to take responsibility for those sins, but to turn away from them and to turn back to God. But again, recognize what part confession plays in that. Many of Ezekiel's contemporaries believed that they were already turned unto God, that there was no incongruence with the way that they were living and worshiping of Jehovah. In other words, they're saying very firmly and confidently, I know God lives to the north, and I've been walking north all my life. And here comes Ezekiel and says, you are headed south. And there is no way to get north, let alone to go north, until you stop heading south. Repentance is like if you realize while crossing the 520 bridge going east, that your destination is actually behind you to the west. Now, I wouldn't recommend doing this on the 520 bridge, but turning around is what's required to go in the appropriate direction, okay? That's repentance. But again here, what he's presenting is, is repentance as a possibility, and that repentance nece- necessitates confession. In fact, notice verse 23. God speaks for himself, and he says, Have I any pleasure... In the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Now, this is a very significant self-expression that demonstrates a vital part of God's character. God is a God of life. God created all life. God gave all of us in this room and everyone in this world the gift of life. 
God sustains our every breath, it says in the Psalms. God is for life. In fact, a primary reason why God warns us about the danger of sin and commands us not to sin is because sin is against life. It leads to death. It hurts us and it hurts others. But on top of that, we have to watch out for these visions of God uh, that take pleasure in judgment like a five-year-old squishing ants with his thumb, right? God is not a God of death. God is a God of justice, but his preferred choice, his primary goal is the goal of life. That's what he's after. That is what leaves the avenue for repentance open. Why? Because repentance doesn't remove guilt. In fact, penance, so repentance is turning away from sin and turning back to God. Penance, seeking to do additional good things to scrub away bad things, doesn't work. Okay. And I think there's a lot of ways that we could uh, demonstrate this to be the case. I think the clearest is murder. No amount of good works will bring that person back from the dead. What's done is done. In fact, here's, here's a way I like to think of it. Think in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin. Eventually, after God's poking and prodding, they confess, they own up to what they do. And God says, look, your coverings you've made for yourself to hide behind will never work. And he kills an animal. The first death in the Bible is at the hands of God. And he clothes them in skins. And he promises to set all of these things right. Even in the very beginning, there's a way back to God. But that doesn't change the fact that Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and the way back to the garden is barred. That's how sin works in our life. Sin is like writing in ink. It's not easily erased. It's not easily removed. There's no going back, even if there's a way going forward. But what I want you to notice here is the potential for human repentance is rooted not in our ability to change ourselves, not in our fresh vows and promises or new sense of self-will, but in God's desire for life. In fact, we find in the New Testament that God's desire for life for us is so great that he's willing to take death upon himself. And so for us as Christians, the way back to God is a way that God paved with his own blood. A ticket he bought at his own cost. The forgiveness we're granted as Christians is never earned or deserved. It's given, but that gift came at the cost of the giver. And when we say why, here we see why. It's rooted in God's character because God is a God of life. Verse 24, but when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? Okay, can you bank enough righteousness to then just skirt free and coast into the kingdom making your own choices and decisions and sins? What if the man who is doing righteous, what if that son right uh, at the end there who's doing everything right decides to turn away from it? Can he be resentful 
when judgment comes upon him? No. It says here, none of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed. For them he shall die. I think that word there, treachery, is worth meditating on. What sets treachery apart from just a bare naked sin? What's Ezekiel trying to suggest here? That there's something betrayal-like moving away from righteousness and into wickedness. And again, I think there's a really deep, interesting theological truth here, which is doing the right thing is right, not just because God commands it, but because God is good in commanding it. We don't just do the right thing to avoid punishment. We do the right thing because God is right. And we agree with him. And we follow him and we honor him with our obedience. And so there is something personal about this idea of falling away. Something personal about this idea of backsliding, uh, about, uh, you know, anti-repentance. It's, it's a betrayal And it's effectively, I want you to notice again, that it won't tip the scales and deal with future sins. Past righteousness won't scrub away future guilt any more than future righteousness can scrub away past guilt. Okay? Effectively, what God is saying here is that he's just and impartial. His desire, his design, his goal is to deal with life. And this is why it requires what Romans calls a way for God to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly which requires the death of Jesus. But look at verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. When you say, you punish the sons for the sins of the Father, you critique God's character, you deny his justice. When you say, God doesn't care about my little sins, look at who my dad is, you deny God's justice. Okay? He says, is it, is it not your ways that are not just? Again, the problem is here, they're placing blame and guilt on everyone except who it belongs on. Verse 26, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it, for the injustice that he's done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from wickedness that he's committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. C.S. Lewis has a collection of essays that he titled, God in the Dock. And when I was a kid, I never understood what that concept was. I'd seen the title on the book, and I thought of boats. But he's talking about the dock as in the place where the uh, accused sits in a courtroom. And he says in the introduction, until modern times, basically all of humanity assumed that we were the ones in the dock and that God was the judge. 
And he says, but now we've come to a place where we sit in judgment of God, where we put God in the dock. And so all of the essays of this book address the questions like these ones of God's justice, of his goodness, of his faithfulness, of his reality. But we see here that uh, although I think there's a way that C.S. Lewis is actually right, there's another sense where this criticism of God, this denial of his justice when we're the uh, unjust ones, goes all the way back to the beginning. In fact, it goes farther than Ezekiel. It goes all the way back to the garden. When God comes to Adam, who's eaten of the fruit of which God told him he should not eat, lest he surely die, and he says, have you eaten of the fruit? What does Adam respond? He says, the woman that you gave me, she ate, and she gave to me, and I ate. But notice, he doesn't just blame Eve there, he blames the giver of Eve, the woman that you gave me, right? He roots his criticism in the God who made him, who gave him life. And we can imagine a thousand other ones, because you've heard it from your children, and you've probably mumbled them to yourself quietly. Why did you put me in a garden with that temptation? Right? But the question here is a clear one. Who's just here? It's like when Jonah, disgruntled in the wilderness after the small plant giving him shade, has been destroyed and the city he hates has not. And he sits there with his arms crossed, pounding. And what does God ask him? Is it right for you to be angry? Right? That's the question. Therefore, he says, verse 30, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed, that you've committed, right? Not your fathers, not your father's fathers. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but that is the only place in the book of Ezekiel where this language is used of something his audience is supposed to do. The promises we find in Ezekiel is God saying, I'm going to give you, Israel, a new heart. The promise is, I'm going to take my spirit and put you in it, right? I'm going to give you a new spirit. But here he calls them to do so. And the question becomes, is this something they can even do? I would suggest to you here that, it, that the best way to understand this is not that Ezekiel is offering them something they can't do on their own, not that he's merely talking about a hypothetical, in other words, there's no person righteous enough for this, like C.S. Lewis says about repentance, truly, that the difficult thing about repentance is only good people do it and only bad people need it, right? It takes a good man to repent, but only bad people need to repent. I would suggest it's different here. I would suggest he's collapsing down the whole thing. His focus here is not on what God is making available. It's the logic for the need of repentance. And no amount of God's grace and goodness and faithfulness and forgiveness removes that logic. In the end, God will be just and we as his people will be justified, which means we actually will be the righteous people that God requires. I think that's what's going on here. He's collapsing these things. Okay. But notice here, he says, uh, he says, Why will you die, O house of Israel? Verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Again, God's heart is for life. Let's move on to chapter 19. 
And you take up lamentation for the princes of Israel and say. Now, a lamentation is a regular poetic format in the Bible. Many of our psalms, like Psalm 88 or Psalm 109, are psalms of lament. Okay. This one is a little bit different because it's not a personal lament unto God. It's a national lament of tragedy. In other words, if you wanted a parallel to this passage, I would recommend you turn to the song that David writes about the fall of Saul and Jonathan. Right? It's a mourning of a happening, but what makes this one unique? It's the fact that Ezekiel's the only one mourning because this event is still future. Okay? He's writing a lament for what will inevitably happen to try again to reinforce the reality of God's coming judgment. Notice verse 2. Say, what was your mother? A lioness. Among lions she crouched in the midst of her young cubs. She reared her cubs and she brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him, and he was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. Okay. Now, this lament is metaphorical. It's talking about a pride of lions, but it's really talking about the kingly lineage of Israel. Now, why the language of lions? We still have this tendency, because it was very much hardened in the Western tradition through, through uh, you know, England, think King Arthur and King John uh, and these types of things. Uh, we still associate lions with royalty. And that's true in the Bible, too. We found Babylonian king lions. We found Assyrian king lions, even in the book of Ezekiel. But it's especially appropriate for Judah. It's especially appropriate for the nation of Israel. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob has all of his sons before him, and in his old age, he begins to prophesy over them one by one. And when he gets to Judah, he takes this language, the language of lions, and he says, Judah is a lion, son of a lioness. And then he says, he's the one who will rule. He's the one who his brothers will bow down to. Not Joseph, but the line of Judah will have this. And he says, in fact, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, is what your translation probably says. Until literally him to whom it belongs comes. So, in other words, there to hold the scepter in regency awaiting a coming king, okay? Now, that language is what leads us to the lion of the tribe of Judah that we associate with Jesus, okay? But what's really interesting here is in this language, not only does Ezekiel draw this image from Genesis 49, but he is going to really push against the thresholds of plausibility of Jewish belief. He knows his audience, knows this passage. He's drawing out the imagery only so he can push against it. Now, secondly here, the idea here is that this mother lion, who is not representative of a person, but the dynasty in general, okay, it's like a family crest, raises up a young lion, and that lion is a strong lion, he's a good lion, but he's also a devourer of men, okay? 
And then it says, when the nations hear about it, they send in a team, and the Egyptians specifically catch him in their pit. This is speaking of Jehoahaz. Okay. Jehoahaz is the one who, uh, who decides to stand up against Pharaoh Necho and loses the fight. Okay. So this is past history to Ezekiel, but notice, verse 5, when she saw that she waited in vain, imagine a mother lioness waiting for her son to return, when she saw that he waited in vain, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He prowled among the lions. He became a young lion and learned to catch prey. He devoured men and seized their widows. He laid waste their cities, and the land was appalled who were in it at the sound of his roaring. Again, the imagery breaks down in a weird way, not because a lion in the city wouldn't cause a lot of havoc, but remember here, this is talking about the king of Judah, but where is he doing damage? In his own town, in the midst of his own people. This is Jehoiachin, okay? Now, Jehoiachin only ruled for three months, and then he's dethroned. But his orientation during that thing was to use all of that power to take advantage for himself, uh, in the language of Jesus, to devour widows' houses, right? To expand his property. Think of... Um, uh, think of the places where the kings of Israel used their power to take advantage of their subjects instead of serving their subjects. That's how Jehoiachin was. And so notice, verse 8, the nation said against him, from the province on every side, they spread their net over him and he was taken in their pit. With hooks, they put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into custody that his voice should no be, more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Okay, and so he gets dragged along to Babylon. Again, that's why Ezekiel and his audience are in Babylon. They were deported with Jehoiachin. And then suddenly the metaphor shifts here in verse 10, and it talks instead of about lions, it talks about vineyards. But again, a vine is a constant image of Israel. Even all the way up to Jesus' day where he tells the parable of the vineyard, uh, vineyard owner and his servants who take advantage of him and kill his servants and eventually his son. Okay? The vineyard was a template image for Israel. Okay? Now what's interesting is in Genesis 49, uh, a vine is also part of the image of Judah. So it's doubly appropriate in this context. But he draws out a similar but slightly different story here. Verse 10, your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became ruler's scepters. There's that word, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's the same word in Hebrew here. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. Now, Notice here, verse 12, but the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit, and they were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Okay, so notice here, there's this vine, and the vine grows into strong branches, a little bit abnormally, high and lofty, strong enough to be scepters. But suddenly it's plucked up in a fury and cast down. It says the east wind dried up its fruit, they were stripped off and withered. As for the strong stem, fire consumed it. Okay, so there's this disaster. There's this destruction. Now notice verse 13. Now it's planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots and has consumed its fruit. 
Okay, this image picks up with Jehoiachin and the disaster that happens here, and then what's left behind is this vine, but it's no longer well watered. In fact, it's only living, as we'll see in a, a further chapter, at the pleasure of the king of Babylon. But notice where this judgment comes from in verse 14. Fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots. Who's the problem now? King Zedekiah. Right? Zedekiah is the one planted by Babylon, put in charge, and yet he is going to bring judgment upon himself by being unfaithful to that charge. But here's the important thing. Listen, verse 14. And fire gone out from the stem of its shoots has consumed its fruit so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. And what does Genesis 49 say? The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. But now the scepter's gone. Okay. Which historically is exactly what happens. Zedekiah is the last of David's sons to reign on the throne of Jerusalem. And when he's removed from Babylon and they're exiled for 70 years, so ends the line of Israel's kings. Now, Ezekiel's told us in a few different places, Isaiah has made very clear that he's going to bring up a shoot from the stump of Jesse and start that lineage all over again. But go back before Jesus and think what it would be like to have this promise of perpetual reign through the line of Judah until the coming of the Messiah, and now no scepter, no throne. That's what Ezekiel is really getting at here. He says, this is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. In other words, again, it's not that God doesn't have a plan here, but he wants the people to see how deep the rabbit hole really goes, how bad things really are, the significant consequences of their unfaithfulness. In fact, more than Isaiah and Jeremiah and most of the minor prophets, Ezekiel makes Israel's circumstances sometimes look dire and just plain over, as if God is done with them. Okay? But again, the reason is because the people who make up his neighbors are so hardened he gets, I don't even want to say hyperbolic, that's the wrong word, but do you know what I mean? He gets extreme in expressing this point so that they might actually get it. And he doesn't soften it by saying, but don't worry, God has another plan, because they're not in a place where they need comfort. I think it was originally said of newspaper barons, but it's become a favorite of preachers, that the role of a journalist originally, or a preacher, is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. Right now, Ezekiel's only agenda is for the comfortable. And so his only job is to disturb them. And he says, will you wake up and recognize that all of the promises that you've been saying, but the promises, but the promises, God's going to keep the promises. He says, will you just look around you and see that they are about to lay in dust because of your sin? Chapter 20. It says here, in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Now, we've seen a similar thing before, again, uh, in Ezekiel, where the elders come and they sit before Ezekiel. And clearly, they're looking for a word. Remember last time, they said, we want to hear a word from the Lord. And God basically said, as long as you're going to continue to worship idols, I only have one word, and that's repent. Okay. And so they come back, which is a little bit surprising. 
And notice also there's a time date here, the seventh year in the fifth month of the tenth day of the month. That would be the seventh year from the deportation of Jehoiachin, or more importantly, two years from the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. So two years away from the destruction of Jerusalem for the gouging out of the eyes of Zedekiah for the end of all these things that Ezekiel has prophesied. They come. Now the question is, why do they come now? Here's what I would suggest is the best answer. In Jeremiah chapter 28, Jeremiah writes a letter to those living in exile, the ones that Ezekiel is ministering to, and he tells them to settle in for the long haul of this exile for a full 70 years. Plant vineyards, build houses, give your sons and daughters away in marriage. And then he says, do not believe the words of the false prophets who say that everything's going to be okay, that Jehoiachin is going to be returned, and he deals with one prophet specifically. Maybe you remember this because it was only a few months ago that we went through this. He deals with one prophet specifically who had gotten outright explicit and didn't just say God's going to set things right, but he says in two years God's going to set things right and Jehoiachin will be back on the throne. And he has this confrontation with Jeremiah and he ends up dying, the other prophet, in two months. And Jeremiah says, in the same way that this word came to pass, so you now know he's a false prophet. The interesting thing is, when you take the timeline of those events and this one, we're getting really close to that two-year mark. Okay? In other words, this is the year that this famous false prophet said all was going to be set back, reset, Jehoiachin returned. And so they're coming looking for a word of the Lord as a confirmation of that, as a positive outlook Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Okay, so first he says, don't even ask. You're not in a posture or a position to ask anything. I mean, think of Ezekiel here. At this point, He's been in ministry for a handful of years, and daily he's conveyed the word of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, as if God has never spoken to these people, the elders come and say, we want to hear what the Lord has to say. It's a little inauthentic, isn't it? And so God speaks and he says, you're inquiring of me, really? He says, I will not be inquired of by you. But then he does have a message. It's not an answer to their questions. But instead, he asks Ezekiel, verse 4, Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know that the abominations of the fathers, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them, I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, and the most gracious of all lands. You getting the feel for what this is? It's a rehearsing of Israel's history. And what do we see in the beginning here? We see God proactively working for Israel's good. In fact, notice that language. He says, I searched out for them a land flowing with milk and honey. It's as if God went looking for the best place to give Israel. Notice here, the story isn't even rooted in their slavery and redemption, just God's outright election. He says, I just chose you, I made you my people, and I promised 
to take you to a land, and it was going to be a good land. And then verse 7, I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay. So he calls them. He has this good plan for them. He asks only one thing in return for his faithfulness, which is their faithfulness. He asks for exclusivity, right? In verse 8, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Now, if you go back and you read through the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, this is a pretty almost exaggerated way of telling the story. It's not uh, that there was none who were faithful in Israel, but the primary cadence of the story is continuous rebellion and unfaithfulness. Right? Numbers, every time they park the, you know, park the tabernacle, they have some complaint against God, some distrust of God, some problem with God. But here it's just summarized. I did all of this good for you, I chose you to myself, and yet you refused to choose me in return. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Okay. And so notice here, the picture is if God is already fed up with them while they're still in Egypt. And he thinks to himself, I'm, I'm just going to judge them right here. I'm just going to take them out. But verse 9, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And so notice here where the restraint comes from. Again, it comes from God's own character. He doesn't, doesn't say here it was out of deep love for Israel that he didn't bring judgment upon them, but for the sake of his name. He was publicly doing something in the Exodus. And so he keeps his commitments to show who he really is. Okay, so this is this, it's, it's generational here. Watch this with me. The first generation are those who are living in Egypt, the second generation we're going to see are those who are going to be living in the wilderness. And then the third generation are those who refuse to enter into the land. Now, those are not actually grandpa, father, and son relationships. But these three phases are laid out so we can get to three generations that he wants to compare to in Ezekiel's day. So then, verse 10, I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So what does he do next? He brings them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone. He sets up and establishes the Sabbath as the sign of the covenant as a gift to Israel so that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But verse 13, the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Okay, and so again we see that uh, God stays his hand, doesn't give them what they deserve. Verse 15, moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I'd given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes, profane my Sabbaths, for their heart went after idols. 
Okay, and so God does discipline them, and he does, for the generation that refuses to enter in, leave them to die in the wilderness, but he doesn't forsake his plan for Israel. Verse 17, nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. And I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourself with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you and that you may know that I am the Lord your God. It is amazing how often as you walk through the history of the Old Testament, God seeks to ratify his relationship with the new generation. Sometimes it's in the faithfulness of the generation prior like Abraham. Right? God doesn't just come to Abraham, he also comes to Isaac and calls him to the same relationship. And then he calls, comes to Jacob. But if you go back to the book of Numbers uh, and look uh, at the very end and through Deuteronomy, God comes to that generation who grows up in the shadow of their parents' judgment and he says, now I'm making the offer with you. Now I'm making the covenant with you. And so he says this, he says these things, verse 21, but the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness, but I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries. Notice that. Where does God say that he's going to scatter Israel? Before they ever enter into the land. If you go back and you read the closing chapters of Deuteronomy, God lays out the law. He reviews the whole thing. He lays out the consequences of keeping the law, the blessing of obedience, the curses that will come upon them. But when you read the curse chapter in Deuteronomy 29, you'll notice that the language starts to change to being a record of history prophetically. Not just a if you do, but when you do. When you forsake me and when you worship idols and when you resist all of my discipline, then I will. So what we need to recognize then is that God, uh, God's entire history with Israel once they enter the land to the days we're reading about now is just God's extended patience. In fact, it's a pretty disturbing idea because this is how God talks about those who lived in the land of Canaan. All the way back in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, your kids are going to live in Egypt. And then I'm going to bring them out with a powerful hand. And he explains they're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. And he says, because the judgment of the Canaanites is not yet full. And now we see that God is actually manifesting the same patience with Israel. Why? Verse 24, because they'd not obeyed my rules and rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. And their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, now this is important, listen to this, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts and their offering up all their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they may know that I am the Lord. Now this is a big question. What is Ezekiel talking about here? There are those who suggest that the idea here is that when God gave the Ten Commandments, that was good. But when he heaped upon them the Old Testament law, that was bad. This comes from a poor reading of Paul's words where he talks about the fact that the law cannot bring life. But we read in Ezekiel here and he talks about a law that brings life and then a law that brings death. 
And so the early church fathers, including Justin Martyr, they suggested here that the Old Testament law as we have it is what Ezekiel's talking about here, and it was really a bad law. It was a binding law, a, a law that made Israel slaves. Okay. But remember, we're not talking here about, uh, about those commandments in the wilderness. This is the generation following that. If anything here, we're talking about at least the book of Deuteronomy, not Numbers, not Sinai and Exodus, right? But actually, we're talking about something that happens with those descendants who are living in the land. The second thing, and I think this is the key to understanding it, is what it says in verse 26, that he defiled them through their very gifts in offering up all their firstborn. Do you remember how God speaks to Israel? Every firstborn child that opens the womb, that one belongs to me. In fact, we see that even in Passover, right? The reason why the children of Israel don't die when the angel of death passes over, and it wasn't all the children, remember, it was the firstborn sons that would die, was because there was blood over the mantle. Where do the Levites as a priest come through? The redemption of these firstborn sons, Levites serve in their stead, okay? But here, he says, I took this gift, Israel, my firstborn son, and I used it to defile them and it says there, in offering up all their firstborn, this is taking us to Molech. Okay. Now, that still leaves us with a question. You say, Justin, are you suggesting here uh, that God brought upon them, um, you know, uh, their own idolatry as a punishment? Yeah. But effectively, he just gave them over to it. And so what happens is, as Israel continues to entertain and worship these gods, they get exactly that what comes with those gods. And God allows it, to a degree, to happen. Now again, I would suggest this does, in a helpful way, get us to a better biblical understanding of the law in the Old Testament, as we should see it. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that it operated as a tutor in place until we reached adulthood. In other words, it act as restraint upon our freedom due to a lack of maturity. In other words, the law was restraining more wickedness and more evil. So in one way, we could say honestly and fully that Israel was like the other nations. That was the problem. But we can also say they weren't like the other nations like the other nations, right? There was a restraint in place. There was a withholding leading up to this new thing that God would do. And so really here, what Ezekiel's doing, and he's doing it in provocative language, is basically saying the way that you're living and thinking, your plausibility structure, the way that you think about God is actually exactly what you deserve. Again, to use the language of Romans 1, where it talks about God giving over, they rejected the truth, and so God let them believe a lie. And that lie led to the slaughter of their own children, Something as Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah all remind us, something that God never wanted, nor did he ever ask for. But notice that last line here. It says that God did this, that, I, that they might know that I am the Lord. He's still got a plan here. It's still self-revelatory in nature. Let's keep moving. Verse 27, therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, in this also your fathers blasphemed me by dealing treacherously with me. 
For when I brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then whenever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented their provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Bama just means high place. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of you? You see what he does here? He does two things simultaneously. He presents a continuity from generation to generation. But like he did with the earlier generations, there's always been an invitation to start fresh and start new, and it's not one that's been taken. Okay? And so he says, would you inquire of me, and yet you haven't abandoned the mistakes of your parents, and yet you've seen the judgment that's fallen on all of these things? Verse 32, what is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribe of the countries, and worship wood and stone. And so he basically says here he is still working so that Israel won't be just another nation. But in stating this, he's also betraying their hearts. In fact, this language should sound familiar to you. In the book of 1 Samuel, the elders of Israel come to Samuel and they say, give us a king so that we might be like the other nations. And God allows it. And he lets it happen. And he moves forward. But he recognizes it for what it is. Whether God had plans for a king or not is irrelevant because he did. That's the whole reason Samuel exists is to anoint a king. Okay? Uh, but their motive is they want to be like the other nations. In other words, he personifies them here as if they've constantly been straining against the law of God to get what they really want to be like everybody else. But here he says, but I'm not going to let it happen. Not in the final, not in the long run. In fact, look at this, verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. Now that Samuel reference is not so subtle, and God just comes out of it, and he says, I will be your king, finally. But notice the rest of the language. Here's what Ezekiel's been setting up for. He begins with the exodus, and now he ends with a new exodus. Listen to that language again. This is the language of the exodus, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's how God brings Israel out of Egypt the first time, but notice it says, and with wrath poured out. There's a difference here. This time the wrath isn't on Pharaoh and his cronies. It's on Israel themselves. But there is a new exodus. There is a new salvation through judgment. He says, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries where you're scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Remember, that's what happens in Mount Sinai. God gets real close. And sometimes we think of speaking with God face to face as an expression of intimacy. Here it's only an expression of immediacy. It's confrontational, right? But notice also this idea is just like the Exodus from Egypt to the wilderness to the promised land. And he says he's going to do the same thing here. 
He's going to take them out of Jerusalem and he's going to bring them into a wilderness. And he's going to bring them into judgment face to face. He says, verse 36, As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now that's a shepherding metaphor. I think the best picture is to think of a bunch of sheep passing into a gate and the shepherd just counting them one by one. Okay? But it is a reaffirmation of covenant. Okay? And then notice this, verse 38. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Which again is a good image of what happens in the wilderness, right? A generation is taken out of Exodus, their children come with them, but that adult generation won't go into the land and God says, so be it. And they die in the wilderness. Okay. Verse 39, as for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, go serve every one of you his idols now and hereafter if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. He basically says, if you're going to continue on your way, so be it. If you're going to continue to walk this road, so be it. And he says, but there's going to be a separation made between my holy name and idolatry. Remember what he says early on? He spares them because of his name. Now he judges them because of his name. Okay, after great patience and long-suffering. Verse 40, for on my holy mountain... The mountain height of Israel declares the Lord God. There all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them and there I will require your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations and you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give your fathers. And so there's going to be a final culmination through you know, the furnace of the wilderness into the reality of the land, of the promises being fulfilled, of God being king, of Zion being um, you know, the high mountain of Jerusalem, all these things. But it is through and simultaneous to judgment. Verse 43, And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you've committed. In other words, they'll finally be in a place of humility. There's that line in the hymn we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that says, When I look at the wondrous cross on which the King of Glory died, all my gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That's the idea that's being expressed here. Verse 44, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Okay. And so first, God makes his name known through his patience. Then he makes his name known through his judgment. And finally, he makes his name known through his forgiveness. Okay. Verse 43, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face towards the southland. Preach against the south and prophesy against the forest land in the Negev. And say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and you shall devour every green in you, and every tree die. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all the faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. 
all flesh shall see that, the, see that I, the Lord, have kindled it, and it shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? Now that's an unfortunate chapter break. A much better one would be to start right before 45, because as we're going to see, God's going to build upon that complaint. But let's just cover the ground that we've talked about here. He says, I want you to set your faiths against the south, and I want you to preach of a forest fire. Okay? A fire that will start in the forest of the Negev and will consume every tree, both the dry and the wet. Nothing will survive this uh, conflagration. Okay? Um, and then in verse 49, he complains and he says, I don't want to talk about a fire. Everybody's already saying, ah, he only speaks in parables. He always uses metaphors. Why won't he just speak frankly? And this is clearly metaphorical because the Negev, that's the wilderness. Think the Dead Sea. There's not a lot of forest there. In fact, a forest fire would be a tremendously ineffective reality there. There's just not enough around to burn. But what he's really talking about is Jerusalem. Right, the kingdom of the Southland. What he's really talking about is Judah. He's not talking about fire. He's talking about Babylon. And so he gets real clear here. Ezekiel complains and he says, can you give me a clearer message? Because they're all asking for a clearer message. And God meets him where he's at. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Do you see how the language is the exact same here, but the metaphor has been stripped out and made literal? It's not the Negev, it's not the wilderness, it's the temple. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you and I will draw my sword from its sheath and cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Okay, a little bit more explicit, isn't it? Not fire consuming dry and wet trees, swords killing the righteous among the wicked. Now, I don't feel the need to unpack that metaphor and go, hey, wait a minute, is God really going to bring consequence on the righteous? We've already talked about that in Ezekiel. That's Abraham's great question. The point here is indiscriminate in the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the point. If it makes you feel better, use Ezekiel's other language he uses in other places, both the young and the old. Okay? It's a merism. What's about to happen in Jerusalem is going to happen comprehensively to Jerusalem. Verse 4, because I will cut you off from both the righteous and the wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north, and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I've drawn my sword from its sheath, and it shall not be sheathed again. Okay. Judgment is impending, and it is inevitable. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes. So again, he's given a performance here, and the performance is just as if you know he's been... Uh, gut punched by his circumstances, right? You know when things happen that they're so awful, you're just a bundle of grief and tears where your stomach hurts from crying. This is what he's supposed to act out. Verse seven, and when they say to you, why do you groan, you shall say, because of the news that is coming, okay? He says, I'm groaning because you're going to groan. I'm responding to tomorrow's headlines today. Okay, verse, seven, uh, verse 7 continues, Every heart will melt, and all hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water, or literally, and water will run down everybody's legs. Right? They'll wet themselves. Behold, it is coming, and it will be fulfilled, declares the Lord God. 
And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say. And what we have following we call the song of the sword. And probably in your Bibles, like in mine, the only thing that's formatted like a song is just the rest of verse 9 and verse 10. But the song continues through the rest of the chapter. Okay? And like a song, uh, it's got a rhythm to it in the Hebrew. It's got kind of this rapid-fire staccato. Um, uh, like a song, it's full of imagery. But let's just read it through. A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice? You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. Now that's a really difficult verse language-wise. The idea that the translators are trying to convey in the ESV here is a sword is necessary because you wouldn't respond to the spoon to put it in modern discipline language, which is intense, is it not? It's not, it's not applicable in a literal sense. We would never say the same thing to our child. Um, but the language here is so brief, it may also be basically they're rejoicing and saying, hey, we have the scepter, because that's the word here, not the rod. We have the scepter, in other words, we are invulnerable because one of David's descendants reigns on the throne. And effectively he says, oh yeah? I know you say that, but, verse 11, the sword is given to be polished that it may be grasped in the hand. It's sharpened and polished to be given to the hand of the slayer, right, handed over to Nebuchadnezzar. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It's against all the princes of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Okay, so this sword is not for Israel, but against them, despite their so-called scepter. Strike therefore upon your thigh, for it will not be a testing. What could it do if you despise the rod, declares the Lord. Okay. And so maybe the idea here is that they said, well, maybe God disciplines, but he will not destroy. Because that is part of 1 Samuel chapter 7, the promise that God makes to David. He will discipline his sons with a rod. But Ezekiel's clear here, that's not what we're talking about. Verse 14, as for you, son of man's prophesy, clap your hands and let the sword come down twice, yet three times, the sword for those to be slain. Like Bible times, clapping can mean a bunch of different things, so we could think of this as being applause. That's not what this is. It's more like when you're trying to get someone's attention and you clap in their face, right? It's loud and it's big, and here it's representation of this swinging sword and it making contact. Um, it is the sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them that their hearts, verse 15, may melt and many stumble. At all their gates I've given the glittering sword. It's made like lightning. It's taken up for slaughter. Cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left. Wherever your face is directed, I will also clap my hands and I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, had spoken. So like the fire, it's to consume everything. Verse 18, the word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man... Mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost and make it at the head of the way of the city. So he's, he's to make a mock set here of a, of a road that crosses at a crossroad, okay? A fork. And so he's to set up this road very clearly and then he's to make a sign that sits in the fork and says this way and that way, right? And what is the sign to point to? He says, verse 20, mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah in Jerusalem the fortified. So this way to Ammon, this way to Jerusalem. Okay. 
4, verse 21, the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. Okay, and so he sets up this whole set because this is what the king of Babylon is going to do. He's going to come to the king's highway and he's going to have a choice in his conquering campaign. He can head north to Ammon or he can head south to Ju Judah and because he's a worshiper of his pagan gods, he's going to use divination to determine which way God wants him to go. Okay? And so there's three types here. He's going to take arrows and he's going to throw them down. We don't know how they read them, but it was a very common practice. He takes the teraphim, his gods, and he consults them directly. And then he consults the liver, meaning he slays an animal and he throws the liver on the ground and something about that would point the way. Now, we can look at this and it kind of shows how silly divination is, right? He's got to use three methods because, because one's not going to be clear enough, okay? And to be honest here, it's a 50-50% chance and if the only choices are left or right, he's going to get a choice. But that's not why Ezekiel's telling this story. Ezekiel's telling this story because he knows the audience doesn't believe in these forms of divination. And yet he goes, but this time, he's going to hear from me. But this time, his divination is going to do exactly what I want him to do. And so it says here, verse 22, into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice of shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up the mounds, to build the siege tower. But to them it will seem like a false divination. They've sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. And so he says, but to your audience, they're going to go, yeah, but who cares what his arrows and his livers tell him? And he says, funny you say that, because you're the oath breakers. Funny you say that because you have broken the covenant with Babylon. We already talked about this last week. And he's like, so who are you to talk about faithfulness and who keeps the word? And he says, not only that again, I'm working in it. Verse 24, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've made your guilt to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that all your deeds, your sins appear because you've come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, Zedekiah, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. In other words, regime change. He says, you might as well get dressed for your travels because it's not, you're not going to need a crown where you're going. A ruin, verse 27, ruin, ruin I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Now that is incredible because that is the language of Genesis 49.10 again. Remember what I told you Shiloh means? Shiloh means the scepter shall not depart from Judah until he comes who it belongs to. And who does it belong to in Ezekiel here? Nebuchadnezzar. This is the final crushing of the dreams of Judah. Now, he doesn't mean that in a full and extended way, although Nebuchadnezzar is God's chosen king and ruler. Remember the book of Daniel, head of gold at the top of the statue. Uh, Babylon is ruling at the allowance of God. But he intentionally grabs this language just to squash their uh, understanding in the dust, not because it's wrong, 
There really is going to be a scepter, uh, or excuse me, there really is the one whose right it comes. That's really going to happen. But they're using those promises to downplay the possibility that they are in dire circumstances. And so he uses that language. Let's finish up here in verse 28. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach. Okay. So just because the Ammonites weren't first on the list doesn't mean that they will escape. Okay. And he says, say to them, a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It's polished to consume and flash like lightning. Sound familiar? Second verse, same as the first. Okay. This time pointed at Ammon. While they see for your false visions, while they divine lies for you to place you on the necks of the profane wicked whose day has come, the time of their final punishment. And then, once judgment is done, return it to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. And I will pour out my indignation upon you. And I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath. And I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So judgment on Judah, judgment on Ammon, and then judgment on Babylon. And God is going to walk through this whole process. Let's pray. Father, it's a provocative thing that Ezekiel does here, effectively denying the steadfastness of God's promises, shattered not because of God's unfaithfulness, but because of the unfaithfulness of his people. But I think sometimes we need that as well, Lord because we hold your promises and deny them in our holding, because we hold them for wrong motives. Like James, sometimes we have not because we ask. Sometimes we have not because we ask with wrong motive. And just like your people who asked for a king because they wanted to be like the other nations, Lord, sometimes we seek your benefits, not for the right reasons. Sometimes you shake us up and make us question if your promises are true, not because they're false, but because we are. And again, Lord, we root this in your character, not just your character of justice, but your orientation towards life. You awaken us to the dangers that we put ourselves in. You even expose us to the dangers that we put ourselves in to, if there be any chance, call us back to the way of life. And we thank you, Lord, that you're so committed to that way of life that you came as a man and experienced death. And you took that death fully and completely so that we need only taste it in this life. And one day, along with all your other enemies, death will be defeated, will be put away forever, and we will only know life and the God who is life. We thank you for that gift. We just want to affirm, as Israel should have affirmed, that your ways are life, that your laws are good, that you are God, that we are not, and that is a great and glorious truth. Help it be joy to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.